Again, good morning. If you have a Bible, I would love for you to make your way to Acts 27. Acts chapter 27. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can grab one from the pew rack. And today's passage is found on page 936. Um, The passage, the the part of Acts 27 that we're going to consider is also printed for you in the bulletin. By the way, Uh, On the way into church this morning, I saw my shadow, and so there's going to be six more weeks of Acts. (laughs) Wouldn't that be fun? No, in all seriousness, I I don't recall if I told you this, but we only have a couple more weeks in this book. There's 28 chapters in Acts. We're going to cover 27 today. Um, So so we're nearly done. And after that, we will take a one-week break. And then we will do a spring series. It'll take about three months. We're going to work our way through the Apostles' Creed. I don't preach the Apostles' Creed. We'll preach Scripture um, from which various parts of the Creed are based. And so we'll, we'll take that. I think the first week, I believe in God the Father Almighty. We'll consider uh, how Scripture affirms um, our eternal uh, God and uh, what it looks like to have faith in Him. And we'll just kind of work our way through that. So that's where we're going. Uh, Growing up in landlocked Oklahoma, I developed a fascination for whatever reason, a fascination with the ocean uh, when I was little. Uh, There's just something mysterious about the vastness of the oceans and the seas. Did you know that the tallest point on earth above sea level is Mount Everest? stands at 29,029 feet, and over 4,000 people have reached its summit. Now, the lowest point on Earth, the lowest point below sea level, is the Mariana Trench. It's in the western Pacific Ocean, and at its deepest point, it is 36,200 feet. What that means is that you, you could take Mount Everest, and you could put it in the Mariana Trench, And the peak of Mount Everest would still be 1.2 miles below the surface of the water. Only three people have ever been to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. Um, 70% of our planet is ocean. It's covered with ocean. And, And we've just explored a tiny fraction of that. In fact, there's there's a sense in which we've explored near space almost as much as we've explored the depths of the ocean. And so I've always been fascinated by the ocean, by its mystery and its vastness from the time that I was little. And I've always wanted to live by the ocean. I've always wanted to sail on the ocean. I still do. Uh, We'll see if that dream ever becomes reality. But a number of years ago, we moved to Fairhope, Alabama. Fairhope is a community just on the eastern shore of Mobile Bay, just right above Gulf Shores. And and so when we moved there, I was away from the landlocked region of Oklahoma and North Texas, and I was finally on the coast, and I finally got to scratch that itch. There was an elder in the church who was a sailor, not a what-about-Bob kind of sailor, but um, an actual sailor, and he bought this 35-foot monohull sailboat, and he sailed it down. He bought it in New England. He sailed it down the East Coast and around the tip of Florida and through the Gulf of Mexico and, and um, moored it there in the bay. And he gave me my first sailing lesson. 
and he took me out many times, and we went out on a small catamaran where he told me and taught me how, how to work a boat. And, and that just sort of inflamed this curiosity and passion that had always been there. And so a few years ago, Kimbo and I decided to take a trip uh, to the British Virgin Islands. I think it was for my 40th birthday. And we decided to take this trip to the British Virgin Islands, but not just any trip. We chartered a boat, and we hopped or sailed from island to island, and we were the crew. No captain, no crew, just us and our friends going from island to island. And we loved that trip. We loved it so much that we did it again this past October for our 20th anniversary. Now, I tell you all of that as a lead-in to today's passage. See, Acts 27, as, as we're going to see, is, is about a voyage at sea. It, it reads like a ship's log. It's full of mariner terms. It's full of chart descriptions. In, in one sense, the details of this passage are fascinating, especially if you like that kind of thing. But in another sense, there doesn't seem to be much spiritual food here. Because the gospel's not in the details. The gospel is in the description of Paul and his faith in God in the midst of this voyage at sea. And so let me give you the context. Let me set the scene, and then in a moment we'll read God's word. After Paul had made his case before King Agrippa, Agrippa and his wife Bernice, after that he was kept in confinement and awaited uh, a trip to Rome. He was kept in confinement. He was scheduled to go to Rome so that he could make his appeal before Caesar. A few weeks later, uh, Paul was placed on a small ship, smaller ship. He was placed on there with a number of prisoners, and they were, uh, they were set sail towards Rome. Uh, many of the other prisoners likely had already been convicted. Many of them um, had been convicted perhaps of murder, but they had been sentenced to death. And, uh, and, and history records that they were being sent to Rome, uh, already convicted to be used as sport in the Colosseum. But Paul was still in the midst of his appeals. There was a man named Julius who was a Roman centurion, and he was in charge of the prisoners, and he was a fairly kind man. He was... Um, a kind man who was level-headed, and, and he had no problem treating Paul better than the other prisoners, and we will see that, and we've already sensed that a bit. And, and so because, because Paul was in a little bit different situation, he was making his appeal before Caesar. Uh, everyone who had heard his story thus far had, had recognized there's nothing, there's nothing guilty about this man. Although he was a prisoner, he wasn't like the other prisoners. And so Julius let Luke as well as Aristarchus, travel with Paul to Rome to care for him, to be a companion to him. You'll, you'll see, uh, if you look down in verse 1, that now again Luke begins to use the pronoun we. He begins to use the pronoun we again. Luke was there. And the reason this chapter is so detailed is because it's a first-hand account. Luke was a physician. And so he obviously had some familiarity with uh, traveling at sea and certain terms, and he uses those, and it's chock full of detail. When, uh, when we began a number of years ago to research charter boats in the BVI, 
I, I learned I was sort of tasked with, or self-tasked, self-appointed, I suppose, because I enjoyed doing it. Um, we learned that there is a high season and a low season. And the low season is from June through October because that's the hurricane season in the South Atlantic and in the Caribbean. And so during hurricane season, a lot of these charter companies will take their boats out of the water and they'll do seasonal repairs and maintenance. And a lot of the businesses shut down for a month or two. They, they shut down, they board up because it is the height of hurricane season. But the interesting thing about that is you can get a really good deal on a charter boat if you're willing to risk a hurricane. And we did, and we did. And that's another story for another time. Um, I can tell you about that. We got a smoking hot deal, but we nearly got stuck <laughs> in San Juan and had to ride out a hurricane. When Paul's ship arrived in Myra, the prisoners were taken from this smaller ship and transferred to a larger cargo ship, a cargo ship that, has, that was taking grain and food products from Alexandria, Egypt, up to Rome. And they were put on this larger ship. And, and we know that it's early October. We know that because Paul references in verse 9 the fast, that the fast had ended. The fast he's talking about is the fast of Yom Kippur, it's the Day of Atonement. And so we know, we know that it's early October. And in the Mediterranean, ships typically remained in port from October through March because that was the low season for the Med. Right, so if you're, if you're ever taking a trip on land or, or ocean base down in the Caribbean, South Atlantic, just know that June through October, it's, it's a dicey proposition. But if you're going to the Mediterranean, know that it's, it's the opposite. It's October through, through March or April. That's when many businesses close down, when many ships are moored in safe harbors. So Paul told them that they should wait. Shouldn't set sail, guys. Not, you know, not, not a good time. But they didn't listen. Julius was intent on getting these prisoners to Rome as soon as possible. And so instead of mooring in a safe harbor and riding out the winter, they set sail for Crete. Now that's the scene. Instead of reading the entire chapter, we're just going to pick up there in verse 13. That's the scene. Paul tells them they should wait. Storms are coming. And, they, and Julius overrules and says, no, we're going to make our way to Crete. We're going to eventually get to Rome. Let me pray real quickly, and then we'll pick up in, in verse 13. Heavenly Father, grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word remains forever. Take your living word this morning. Open our ears, um, open our eyes, give us receptive hearts. Help us as we read your word and what's really um, sometimes a, a difficult passage to see any kind of spiritual food here. Chart descriptions, mariner terms, a storm at sea. But in the midst of that, we pray that you would you would do a gospel work of showing us our sin and leading us by the hand to our Savior, that we would have great confidence and faith in him. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. This is God's holy word. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Nor'easter struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. 
Running under the lee of a small island called Kata, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. Parenthetically, the ship's boat, larger ships would have a smaller ship, a tender, a dinghy, a, a, a way of getting from the larger ship to the shore. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. And since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and have not set sail for Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land, and so they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little further on they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today's the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food. It will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, and at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck, uh, stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that they were all brought safely to land. May God write his word upon our hearts. Here's what you need to know. Near the island of Crete, 
They, they couldn't find a safe harbor. The, the storm was picking up, and so the sailors tried to use a sea anchor to, to stop the drift, and they removed the tender, that little small boat. Uh, they removed it to, um, to keep the wind from catching it. They lowered the stern anchor so that they would face into the wind, but none of that helped their condition. And after two weeks, they discovered what they thought was a safe beach to run the ship aground. And so the, the text says they took soundings, uh, sort of an ancient practice. Now di- ships have depth meters, and so it just tells you automatically, digitally. But they would lower um, a rope into the ocean that had markings on it, and they would figure out how, how deep the water was. The problem was that it kept getting shallower and shallower until they eventually hit a reef. And I know a little something about that. I know a little something about storms and about hitting reefs. This past October, um, I was captaining the boat that we were on. It was a 45-foot catamaran. We were sailing from one island to another. We had left the main island, um, and we were on our way to a little island that happened to be called Cooper Island, uh, which I was dying to go and and buy my daughter uh, a shirt with her name on it. Then out of nowhere, this storm appeared. It really was out of nowhere. It wasn't uh, forecasted in the apps we were using. An hour ago, the skies were clear. So we were in the middle of the Sir Francis Drake Channel. We were still probably an hour and 20 minutes sail away from port. And this storm came upon us. And it was, now I was never fearful for my life, but I was afraid. And, And it took everything that I had to keep the boat facing into the waves to ride it out. And we were bobbing up and down on the sea like a cork. And the waves were lapping over the boat. And uh, it was windy. And it was scary. And so I had this thought. I know a little something about what the prisoners may have felt like. But this was just a storm that kind of came up. It was gone in two hours. But they faced a northeaster that battled them and battered them for two weeks. And so you can imagine their fear. You can imagine their loss of hope. We saw in verse 20 that that when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and this tempest lay upon us, all our hope of being saved was gone. Our first time that we went to the BVI, I was also captaining the boat. Maybe that's the problem. When these things happen, I'm at the helm. And we were, we were making our way to North Sound, which is the large bay on the north end of Virgin Gorda. And the channel to get into that bay is, is very narrow, and there are shallows and reefs on either side. And so they have channel markers. It's pretty straightforward. You don't have to be a rocket surgeon to, to do this. You just gotta, you just gotta keep it between the buoys. That's all you gotta do. But I didn't. And I turned too quickly, and, and suddenly as we're heading in towards the bay, uh, the depth alarm went off, and the next thing I knew, we had run up on a coral reef. We'd struck the coral reef, and so I reversed the engines, and I backed off. I did just a little bit of damage to the hull, but if we'd stayed there, if we hadn't backed off or if we had hit it too hard, then our hull could have been damaged severely. So you get some sense of of just on a small coral reef, not in the middle of a huge storm. This was a beautiful day of the damage that can be done. So you have an understanding of what they were facing as they tried to make their way to land. And it kept getting shallower and shallower until they eventually struck this reef and were torn apart on the rocks. 
with Paul and his companions, their ship was ultimately destroyed. But all 276 men made it to shore. They made it to this island called Malta. Next week, we're going to consider Paul's ministry on Malta. But here's what I want us to do this morning. I want to draw out a few spiritual truths from these events. And here's the first truth. Nothing can thwart God's sovereign plan. Nothing can thwart God's sovereign plan. We see that in verses 22 through 25. God sent a messenger. He sent an angel to Paul, and this messenger reminded Paul that you will stand before Caesar, that God has planned for you to stand before Caesar, and he will bring it to pass. In other words, God's message to Paul was, my plan for you is to make it to Rome, and I will make sure that it happens. Despite every evidence to the contrary, this is what I have planned for you, and this is what will come to pass. You see, Paul understood that when it comes, when it comes to the seas and when it comes to the storms, ours is the God who both causes the storm and calms the storm. And in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus and his disciples were on a boat, a much smaller boat, and, and, and the boat was in the midst of a storm, and it was about to capsize because it was taking on so much water, but none of that bothered Jesus. He was asleep in the bow, and his disciples came, and they said, Lord, do you not care that we are perishing? Save us. Jesus awoke. He looked and spoke at the wind and the waves. The text says that he rebuked them, and the sea became calm, and then then the disciples said, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? And they were afraid. You see, who is that man? That God man that has total control over nature? Who is this God that told Paul, despite every evidence to the contrary, you will make it to Rome and you will live, not only you, but everyone on the boat? Our God is sovereign. Our God is in absolute control, and nothing can thwart his plan, and no one can stay his hand. And verse 25 says that Paul had faith in God, and we can too. Listen, when it comes to this notion, this doctrine of God's sovereignty, some people wrestle against it, but we're meant to worship because of it. Some people wrestle against and they chafe with the idea of God's sovereignty, that he is in absolute control, but it's meant to be a catalyst for worship. Sovereignty is not meant to be a jagged pill. It's meant to be a comforting bomb. If God is not sovereign, if he is not in absolute control of absolutely everything, then to me that's the scariest, the scariest notion of all. If anything or anyone can overpower and thwart God's plan, then God's not worthy of our worship. Now, what does this mean practically? Well, it means that when you're facing some life-altering disease, that your fate is not left to chance, that it's, that it's not left to, to um, circumstance, that it's not even ultimately left up to the skill of your physicians, although God does use skilled physicians to treat us. It means that you're in God's hands. That ultimately, your, your, your life 
and health is not left to random events. That God is sovereign. It means that when, when your kids rebel and they wander away from the church, that, that their fate is not left to chance, nor does it depend on your perfect parenting. They're in God's hands. So the question will always come down, always come down, whether it's death and disease, whether it's storms and seas, whether it's the direction our children take, the question will always come down to whether or not we trust God. Do we trust God more than we trust ourselves or even what our eyes can see? Do we believe that God is sovereign and can we rest in that sovereignty that nothing can thwart his plan, that no one can stay his hand, that if he has planned for you to get to Rome, you will get to Rome? If God is sovereign over storms and seas and death and disease and the direction of our lives, he is also sovereign over salvation and that makes all the difference in the world. That God is sovereign over salvation. But let me give you a couple of thoughts. Because God is sovereign over salvation, it means that our evangelism is purposeful and a believer's separation from God is impossible. Because God, the, the same God who, who incarnate spoke to the wind and the waves, and they were stilled. The same God who said a comforting word to Paul and said, I know it doesn't look this way. I don't know no one else believes that it's going to happen, but you're going to get to Rome, everyone on board with you. That God is sovereign over the hearts of men. He is sovereign over salvation. And what that means is that our evangelism is purposeful and that a believer's separation is impossible. Let me flesh that out just for a moment. Friends, you can, you can share the faith and you can cast out seed, and then you can trust God to do his work. Calvinists should have more confidence in evangelism than anyone because we believe that it's not up to us ultimately, that it doesn't matter how eloquent we are, it doesn't matter how gifted we are, doesn't matter if we stumble over our words, doesn't matter always if we say the right things, that if God is at work, that our evangelism is purposeful and that God's word will never return void but accomplish the purpose for which he sends it forth. It also means that, that if you weren't the one in control of your salvation, then you won't be the one to lose control of your salvation. Paul said in Romans 8, who, who can bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or nakedness or famine or peril or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because God's sovereign over salvation, believer, nothing can separate you from him. You weren't the one who, who brought yourself into a relationship with God, and you can't be the one to remove yourself from it. Here's the second truth. 
God shows covenantal kindness. Notice again what the angel told Paul in verse 24. He said, do not be afraid, Paul. God has granted you all those who sail with you. The New Living Translation puts it this way. God in his goodness has granted safety to everyone sailing with you. Now, why would God spare the men with Paul? Because they were with Paul. New Testament scholar Simon Kistemacher says this about that verse. For the sake of his elect and in covenant faithfulness, God shows blessings to unbelievers. Genesis 12, God told Abraham, I will bless you and you will be a blessing so that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Ten, verses, or ten chapters later, he again tells Abraham, because you have obeyed my voice, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. We see this same principle with Joseph in Genesis 39.5, which says, the Lord blessed the Egyptians for Joseph's sake. From the beginning, God has showed goodness and mercy and kindness to many people because of his covenant faithfulness to his people. This truth, I think that's very easy to miss in this passage. This is the basis for why we baptize our children. Our children, even before they believe and profess faith in Jesus, they are blessed because of God's covenant kindness. God looks upon them with favor because they are with us in the same way that these men were with Paul. Now, some people struggle with God's sovereignty, for sure, and some people struggle with this concept of covenant faithfulness because they think it's unfair. That it's unfair of God to show kindness to one person because of his covenant with another person. But listen, that's the very heartbeat of the doctrine of justification. Friends, we had all better hope that God shows covenant kindness and mercy and grace to us because of his covenant with another. God covenanted with himself to show kindness and salvation because of Christ. And so just like the men were with Paul, and so God God said, Paul, all of them will be spared because of my plan for you. Because the men were with Paul like our children are with us, the only way to be spared eternally is to be with Jesus. When we are united to him by faith, God relates to us for Jesus' sake. That is covenantal kindness. It's covenantal mercy. It's covenantal faithfulness. We didn't do anything for it. These men were guilty criminals, and yet, at least for the moment, they lived because of God's covenant with Paul. And so we see God's covenantal kindness. And here's the final truth. God reveals salvation in the most unlikely ways. So this passage, it's about a storm and a shipwreck, but ultimately it's about salvation. For two weeks, it says after the 14th day had passed, for two weeks these men had been at the mercy of the sea. Truly at the mercy of the sea. For two weeks, uh, they, had, they had hungered because they had rationed their food, uh, not knowing how long they would be there. Their lives were literally in peril. 
Verse 20, Luke records, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. But then this familiar scene plays out in verse 35. Paul urged the men to eat. He said, look, you've got to eat, and you will live. And then, verse 35 says, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Does that sound familiar? It's the exact same language Jesus used when he fed the 5,000. It's the exact same language he used in the upper room while giving his disciples the Eucharist meal. He took bread, giving thanks to God. He broke it, and they ate. Now, I, I, I'm not implying, I, I don't mean at all, that, that Paul was conducting the Lord's Supper on the ship. I don't believe that at all. But he was using the words and the form of the salvation meal. And so in the midst of this storm, God revealed salvation to these men, and then he saved them, perhaps not spiritually, but physically. That God did a miracle. He spared these men's lives. And what we see throughout the Gospels is that physical miracles and sparing someone's life points to God's salvation on a grander scale. Paul was illustrating through this momentary provision, God's eternal provision. He was feeding them, and, and, and by sparing their lives, and by them eating, and by God providing for them, he was illustrating, and Paul picked up on those words, God's eternal salvation. Now, I don't think it's a stretch at all to imagine that at least some of those 274 men on board, of course, we're excluding Paul and Aristarchus and Luke. I don't think it's a stretch at all to imagine that some of them wondered about this God that Paul served, this God that he worshipped, this God that saved them, this God that provided for them. I don't think it's a stretch at all to, to imagine that perhaps some of them trusted in Paul's God. See, they would ultimately spend three months together. Do you think that the Apostle Paul never shared the gospel on the island of Malta? He had a captive audience. In my mind, this is conjecture, but I don't think it's a stretch. I can just imagine Paul on the island of Malta speaking to his fellow prisoners and saying, fellas, that bread that you ate on the ship, that'll only sustain you for a moment. But if you eat of the bread of life, you'll never hunger again. God uses every possible means to show us his salvation. And in the midst of a storm, in the midst of a sea, Paul feeds them. Paul feeds them and uses the words of God's salvation meal. Friends, let me leave you with this. Embrace God's sovereignty. Embrace it. Don't wrestle against it, but worship because of it. I don't mean, and I'm not saying that, that we will not wrestle with understanding God's sovereignty. Yes, we, we will wrestle with it. But I urge you not to wrestle against it, but to embrace it. To, to embrace that God is in control of all things. And I want to encourage you to look to Jesus as the basis for your hope. That all of God's favor to you is because of Christ. That God is merciful and gracious and kind and disposed to you for the sake of his son.
and that we see his covenantal faithfulness in little momentary glimpses. And do that. Look for glimpses of God's salvation. See his work in the world and recognize that his work in the world points us to his otherworldly ways. We can see that here, and we'll see it more clearly next week. These men, they made it to shore. All of them were brought safely to Malta, and God prospers them while there. We'll see that next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a fun passage. What, what, a, what a fun passage. It wasn't fun for those men who endured weeks at sea and months um, on a remote island. It, it, almost, it could be made into a movie. Um, there are movies that have been made very similar to this. Lord, it's a fascinating story. But ultimately, the spiritual reality is what we, what we long to receive. That this storm didn't take you by surprise, but you had ordained it, and you were in the midst of it, and you showed your sovereignty through it, and you showed these men salvation. And so I pray for us that, that when, we, when, we, when we face, maybe it's a disease, maybe it is the death of a loved one, maybe it's um, a trial of life, something that seems random and, and, and beyond any possible control, that you would strengthen our faith, that we would understand that it's not random and it's not out of control, it's just out of our control. And that we, like Paul, would have faith. That we would have faith and so increase our faith. Do that work for us, we pray. Not because we deserve it, but for the sake of your Son. In whose name we pray, amen.